Hey everyone, I just wanted to take a quick minute to let you know that we've launched our Patreon site and that you can now become a supporter of the show. The awards in there include artist features on our website and shoutouts on the show, as well as open invitations to join fellow patrons in our roundtable discussion episodes. So if you think you might be interested, please take a look at the link in the description or just go to patreon.com slash at percussion, so slash A-T percussion. Okay, thanks for listening. Okay. All right. Hello, everyone. Stop laughing at me. Damn it. I always do this. <laughs> what was the snap? I've never seen the snap. That's me getting into my zone. This is all going in. This needs to go on Instagram. Let's have that snap again, and then we'll know you're serious. Let's, let's all do it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Three, Three two, two, one. Wow, the delay. <laughs> I think you already you all were together on my end. The same. I felt the same. Anyway, okay, I'm going. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Hello, everyone. You are listening to Ad Percussion Podcast 250th episode. <laughs> which will be released on September 24th. With me are Casey Cangelosi. Hey there. Hey, Casey, and Ben Charles. Hi, everybody. Ben, you get to tell us first what happened on September 24th in history. Yeah, it's my first ever mini history segment. I'm pretty excited. Uh, <laughs> I had I had two items, one quick and one a little longer. One, and oh, I, I forgot to hear about this. Um, give me one second. Um, Ben's getting a pay cut. Pay cut. Cut this out. Okay. Pay cut. Uh, my, my first item is uh, September 24th, 1991. There is a very famous album released for our, I know that Ksenia is a big 90s rock and roll fan. Uh, and that was Nirvana's Nevermind album was released. That's the one with the infamous uh, controversial Naked Baby on the cover. And then one other news item that happened on September 24th, 1988, James Brown, the famous funk artist, was in a high-speed car chase. There's a Time Magazine article about it, and I just wanted to uh, read a little bit of that article to you. It says, rumors of a PCP habit had already surfaced by this time his erratic behavior came to a head in September when he reportedly stormed into the insurance company next to his office, waving a shotgun and complaining that strangers were using his bathroom, as time reported in its take on his crime and punishment. When the police arrived, Brown led them on a high-speed car chase through Georgia and South Carolina. He tried to ram police cars with his pickup truck. They shot out two of his tires. He drove on the rims for six miles. Years later, this episode would frame the 2014 Brown biopic, Get On Up. And uh, I just, I love the last line of this Time Magazine article. It says, like, it says, unlike OJ's, James Brown's car chase was naturally high speed. Wow. So that is an eventful day in history in 1988. Wait, what does it have to do with Get On Up? Uh, th- there was a there was a James Brown biopic and that it was the bookend, I guess, the front and the end of that film okay actually that movie in that movie um chadwick boseman who recently passed away starred he played um james brown so it's definitely something that i've put on my list that i i want to watch i did not that yeah was the nirvana album cover controversial i don't remember it being controversial because the naked baby yeah exactly yeah 
Oh, yeah, nudity and, is frowned upon in the U.S., didn't you know? Well, and you have to also remember, I mean, like, the <laughs> late 80s, or early 1990s, this is when we had, like, the Tipper Gore, like, parental advisory stickers coming out and all. I mean, it was a very rock and roll as the devil sort of time in music. Yeah, but 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 nothing beyond just like, hey, we, there's a naked baby on the cover. That's I mean, I'm sure, that's obscene. I'm sure, I'm sure the man hated the music, too, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. it was grammatically incorrect. Nevermind is uh, spelled together. It doesn't have a space in between. And that's sort of Kurt Cobain going like, screw you guys. I'm going to do whatever I want. And oh, man, that grammatical error said everyone. <laughs> yeah. All that, all that went over my head at that time. It's fun. So what did you have to add, Casey? Whose uh, oh, birthday is oh, it? Just a quick birthday, September 24th. Also, composer Amy Scuria, which I, I know none of you have heard of because you're all puppets of the patriarchy, but I thought it'd be important, especially Ksenia and especially Ben. <laughs> so if you're li looking for some new listening, and uh, yeah, she's got some cool chamber music with percussion in it. She's a graduate from Rice University, so her and I were, were basically like the same. Like you might as well just assume my music's just as good as hers and that I've won just as many awards. But she won, what, 12 consecutive ASCAP awards. She's been commissioned and, and been performed all over the place. Uh, Philadelphia Orchestra Commissions, Minnesota Symphony. She got her first commission when she was 19, her first orchestral premiere when she was 24. So she's super young. She was born, I think it was September 24th, 73, I believe. So, yeah, of course, she's still alive and well. She also studied with Chen Yi, who we haven't talked about extensively on the podcast, but I know we've, we've certainly mentioned. And uh, Chen Yi is the first Chinese female to receive her master's degree in composition, um, I, th I think, anywhere in China. Um, from happened to be from the Conservatory of Beijing. And also, Chen Yi has a little uh, piece in one of the Nancy Zeltzman Commission collections called uh, Jing, which you may have heard of. But uh, yeah, so anyway, she studied with Chen Yi, and today's her birthday. That's really cool. Happy birthday. Speaking of female composers, I, I don't think I mentioned this on the podcast before, but I just wanted to share a quick news item from my life that I was excited about, and maybe someone else will be too. Uh, when I was selecting my percussion ensemble repertoire for this semester, I decided, and I've never consciously done this, but 50% of my pieces needed to be by someone other than straight white males. Uh, so I was looking for pieces by minority composers, female composers, queer composers, anyone I could come up with. And Percussive Arts Society has all sorts of wonderful resources with that. They, the Diversity Alliance has released some nice databases that you can look at. And I came across a composer named Sarah Rimkis. Uh, and I was just blown away by how beautiful her works were. And I, I chose to do one of her pieces. It's a quartet called Blackbird, um, which if you know me, I'm a Beatles fan, but this actually has nothing to do with the Blackbird by the Beatles. It's a completely different piece, just happens to share a name. But anyway, check out Sarah Rimkis's music. It's one that I was not familiar with. It's not like a Steve Weiss name, like you get the music directly from her website, but good stuff. Ksenia, have you heard of Sarah Rimkis? I have not. Patriarchy. But now I have. I know. Patriarchy. Yeah. I need to switch teams, damn it. Pawn. Yeah, pawn. 
Um, but I'm very happy to hear about those uh, and I will definitely check them both out immediately as soon as we're done and we'll celebrate her birthday as well. Um, all right, so now we get to um, introduce our guest for today. Um, our guest is Sam Um. Da, 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 da. Hi, Sam. Hello. <laughs> Hi, so nice to have you. Uh, you'll allow me to say a few sentences about you, but everybody knows you because you're one of those faces that pops up as the recommendation on Big Firth videos Sorry. all the Sorry. time. Don't be. You're 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 just you're a superstar. You're a household oh. name by now. Oh. <laughs> um, but everybody knows you from from those videos. And if if you don't know, just go check out you know Raybons or Bright Variations or so-called Laws of Nature or Liber Tango or Grace Double Concerto and so 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 many others. Um, you might also know Sam as a member of the Percussion Collective, uh, an ensemble comprising Yale alumni only. It's very fancy and excellent music, of course. And uh, with the group, he's brought to life Drum Circles, a new concerto by Chris Theophanidis, which we're going to talk about um, on the podcast, I hope. Um, Sam went to Eastman and Yale before settling at Peabody, right, as a doctoral teaching assistant. This is something a little bit new, yeah? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but also a really, really exciting news in Sam's life is that he has somehow managed to uh, go ahead and be a student and a teacher at the same time. Um, so he is the latest addition to faculty at the University of Kansas, which is so, so, so cool. Um, I think Ben would like to ask you the first question, so I'll, I'll let him go ahead. Yeah, and I think this is our first ever Instagram question, um, which I'm not even on Instagram, so there we go. But uh, the the two names, when you think of the like the Vic Firth videos, the two names I think that pop up most are Sam and Ian Rosenbaum. And I, I hope Sam doesn't mind the comparison, but I think of both of you as this very similar style of just so cool and calm and collected. Uh, and if you've ever recorded, you know how miserable recording can be. And in the time of COVID, I think recording is a very prevalent thing. And so we had a an Instagram question from, oh gosh, D. Jorson Beats. <laughs> uh, and it says, how did you overcome nerves to being recorded for companies such as Vic Firth? And I think just in general, how do you overcome that uh, red light syndrome? Yeah, well, I think I... I, I try to make recording part of my habit when I practice just because I'm, I get really curious of how I sound when I practice. Um, and, you know, from my time in Eastman and studying under Professor Burrett, um, it was always this, like, you have this phone, you know, sort of like back in my day, you know, we had to get a recorder and record ourselves and like it was super hard to do. But now you guys all have this, you know, phone in your pockets that we can record and now even slow motions right so um, I think I always try to make it habit where when I was practicing I try to record so I, I think recording kind of became sort of uh, second nature but but recording still makes me more nervous than performance I'll throw it out there um, but I think I just tried to kind of take it as this is a concert I'm performing. Let me just not worry about the cameras and, and all that. Let me just, you know, this is a performance. You know, this is a concert. Um, so yeah, I think that's how I try to overcome the fear. But I, I, I do have the fear. I'm, I'm very glad to hear that um, I look not fearful in those videos, but 
Um, yeah, it does I, not show. <laughs> no, like I said, I think I, I, I feel more stressed when I'm recording than performing. So uh, I still do have that. But again, I think making that part of my routine definitely helped. Yeah. And, and these videos are done like a Vic Firth crew comes in, like they have a video guy, right? Mm -hmm. And they, he comes in and brings all the equipment and everything. I, I wonder, um, you know, if, if you're just to record yourself, I always like to ask, what is what is your preferred method or your preferred gear? Or I always like to nerd out on this a little bit. I'm not I'm not such a technical guru when it comes to recording gear. Um, but I when I yeah, I came to when I was preparing for like pre-screening tapes for master's program, I was looking for some really good recording gear, but also that's super simple to use. So I, I still now I use Zoom H6, um, which uh, itself, I think it's a great... Sorry, sorry uh, to interrupt, but I just wanted to clarify because of what's going on right now. Zoom is also a brand of recording in addition to the video conferencing software, just so no one's confused. Right, <laughs> right, right. So Zoom, the company that makes you know, video recorder and then audio recorder and sometimes microphones, I'm sure. But yeah, Zoom H6, I still use that. And I've, I've talked to many of my friends who are really into the recording gear and they all seem to really like zoom h6 are you maybe you yeah. can add more to it casey but i like that yeah. one a lot yeah i bought yeah. one of those for the studio yeah yep yep yeah and for I videos them, like, you, i tell them but, you guys can use this i mean i wouldn't be caught dead using it but you can use it it's yeah. they laugh. yeah no it's kidding it's great yeah it's a totally great yeah and for videos i just use like dslr yeah and sync them together yeah sure Sure, sure, sure. So uh, we've heard through the grapevine, because not everyone's had this fancy opportunity of recording for Vic Firth, but we've heard that for some of them, um, they show up and you don't get this, it's not this leisure experience where you have the whole day to record a complex piece of music. It's like they come in and the clock is ticking. It's like, okay, you've got 60 minutes to record a 15 minute piece or something similar. Is this a myth, a uh, legend? Can you tell us a little bit about these? Uh, challenging slash traumatizing experiences who knows yeah i think it varies between <clears throat> people uh but in my case uh i've so the recording that has or well, the recording that i did where it was with the so-called law the takamitsu piece toward the sea isabel dances ray bon, those are all recorded in the same day <laughs> yeah let me try wow. to see if there was more oh and then aria was also in the same day so that day i recorded six pieces seven pieces and 10 okay. it took me 10 hours yeah i was there from 9 a.m we left at like 8 p.m 9 p.m wow okay yeah. well listen the, the whole question of like, you know, like, how do you how do you get better at recording? Like, do it a lot. I'm sure by the end of a 10 hour like recording day, you're like, screw it, like hit the record button. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure whatever that part of you that's afraid is just dies by that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and water was on there, too, which hasn't come out yet, which hopefully will soon. But yeah, so it was like seven, eight pieces. Oh, my God. But it, 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 it depends. Like I said, I think for some cases, uh, they schedule in a different way. So for you, you know, you get two hours for one piece or something like that. 
Um, but that year was very just somehow we just had so many pieces that we wanted to record. Um, and we were like, let's just do it, get it, get it done in one day. So, yeah. That's insane. Well, Sam, I was going to, I don't know if this is a question or if I'm just making a statement here, but I remember a while back hearing Evan Chapman talk about when he was in school, he said he would perform these pieces. And then it was like, as soon as the performance over, you never saw the piece again. And so he sort of made it a mission to actually record every piece that he played. And it's nice because you actually get, for lack of a better word, a souvenir to take away from your you know, experience with that piece. And if you learn something like Reflections on the Nature of Water, you probably want a record of it that you did and you probably want it to stick around. Is that is that sort of your viewpoint of this piece, any piece that you you learn that's worth it you want to record? Of course, of course. Yeah. Well, I was going to, I guess I'll tack on a question to that now that we're, now that I've stumbled into my question. Um, and that is, so a lot of the time we learn a piece and we play it, but we like to sort of sit with the piece for maybe even a few years before you record it. So con variations, for example, I wouldn't want to record as soon as I put the, you know, finishing touches on the last note. So how do you address that? I mean, you said you record along the process. Do you have any pieces you'd like to go back and have another shot at or whatever? Of course. Of course. I mean, there are definitely um, old videos of me back when I was at Eastman performing like kind of variations or something, something like that. Um, there are videos that I actually deleted, you know, went back and uh -oh. saw, I think Chacon was up there. I deleted that. Um, but yeah, I, I, like I said, I, I, I always had this, you know, this kind of tradition, I, I guess, of just recording it because I felt like you know, I think what you said is right. Like it's, I've worked so hard, you know, for a few months working on this. I want to have it, you know, and just kind of be able to even post it. And now this day and age with social media, I at least want to sort of have a snippets of it and upload it. And I think that's really valuable in, in both sort of, you know, being proud of yourself, but also at the same time, trying to use it for your own promotion or your, for, for your website. I think that's, you know, every, I think everyone should do that. Um, I think we're always learning, you know, I don't think there will be any time where I, I would feel 100% comfortable with con variations, to be honest. Um, so, <laughs> yep. yeah, so I would say try to record now, you know, why not? And then if in 10 years down the road you want to record again, great, you know, even better than you have a new version of it. So. Yeah, my gut would just to be recorded every time you get a chance, you know. Yeah, and you can see your evolution um, in it. That's what I love about Svet's 10-year gap, I believe, between the recording of or two recordings of that piece is that you can definitely hear. They're both very convincing, but you can hear a difference, the, right. the evolution, the musical right. evolution. Um, so I was going to go ahead and ask you about your latest endeavor, which is what's up in Kansas? How's life there? How's teaching? Tell us about your new gig. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's, it's great. Um, first, I mean, I've never lived in the Midwest before. I've only lived in the East Coast. Um, but coming here, I, I love it. Um, you know, it's very quiet, which I really love, actually. No traffic. Oh my goodness, wow. I, I'm from the DC area, so I, you know, I've lived with the traffic, but here and I, I don't get that, so it's, it's awesome. Um, the students are also very, very nice. Um, they're very talented. Um, they're very eager. I think that's, that's more, more important than being talented or not, I think. They're just very eager to 
you know, search more and go out and, you know, be curious. Um, so, yeah, we, we just had our first lesson last week, uh, which all, every, all of them went really, really well. And um, it's weird because I'm meeting them for the first time, but we all have masks on. So I, I own them by their hair and their eyes. You know, like I don't know them by their faces, um, which is a bizarre thing. But um, we're slowly getting used to used to it. And uh, this whole hybrid, the KU is doing a hybrid thing where, you know, for studio classes and stuff like that, half of the studio will be online. Only half will be in the room. Um, but everything is going super smoothly. Yeah. So you're, you're going there in person. Yes. And are you, are you, you know, in, in your intro, Kassen, you mentioned that you're teaching this new gig and you're doing your DMA at Peabody. How the heck do you do that? Well, at, at Peabody, I'm ABD. Um, oh, okay. I'm done with all the coursework. Okay. So I don't have to be at, you know, I don't, I don't, have, to, I don't have to be in Baltimore. So um, that's good. I just have to finish a series of exams and all of the recitals are also, which is a little bit making my case easier just because everything now has to be live streamed anyway. Um, but yeah, I just have to finish those requirements not to attend any classes. Yeah. Cool. Very cool. cool. Well, speaking of Kansas, uh, we had a Facebook question or sorry, an Instagram question from Jade Hales. And I guess before I ask the question, I just wanted to mention like Sam is walking into this amazing legacy of University of Kansas professors. Many years ago, John Parks taught there. More recently, Jihei Jung taught there, and then Mike Compatello taught there. So obviously, a bit of a, a bit of a Yale club with those most recent two, and both both very talented performers and teachers. Uh, and so Jade Hales asks, what are some fresh perspectives you plan on bringing to your new job, and what value do you find in bringing fresh perspectives to already established institutions? Yeah. Well, I think for all my past teaching, although I've never taught in like an institution, but you know, we've all taught privately, you know, since we were like in college and stuff like that. And I actually, I'll tell you how I first learned drums. So I first started drums, drum set back in Korea when I was in Korea back in 2002. And my teacher there, he was also a student. So he, I didn't get to sit on a drum set for a year and a half. Uh, the only thing we, I, we did was we had this huge truck tire and we just kind of sat and we, all of the students kind of sat around the truck tire with a metronome in the middle of it. And I'm not, not kidding you, for two months, we will do those first two months. And then the next two months will be eighth notes and you know he was also a student so i don't think there was never like i said we all the students sat around this truck table so it wasn't like everyone gets an hour lesson it was just come and we will just do this until you guys get tired and leave so literally every week i would go there and we would do this for four hours and i would come home and then the only homework and the stuff that i have to practice is just do that at home and the mission was like, you, you, you know, you have to not be able to hear the metronome, right? And I got so, like, 
angry and fed up that I can't do it. And I just kind of really wanted to do it. So I kept, and I just remember for a year and a half, we got up to like 30 second notes. So for a year and a half, I didn't like it, but at the same time, I really loved it. And then I could really feel the difference when I got to the drum set, you know, because I already knew about the rhythms. I already knew about, you know, we worked on this like division of your hands and feet. So with that background, my initial goal is always to bring in the basic, most basic fundamentals of percussion, drums, whatever it is that we play. And um, of course, I'm not going to let everyone sit in a truck circle and just do this, but to just really teach them about basic fundamentals of music, basic fundamental of how the sound works. That's what I really learned at Yale under Professor Van Seis how the sound works, what we can do with it, how we can manipulate it, and all those things um, is what I'm trying to really set as a background for everyone uh, before we tackle on any other pieces, stuff like that. Yeah. So, so the big foundation for drum set, it sounds like, is time. And I mean, I, I knew friends who did, uh, you know, it took them a while to get past the quarter note in the um, Joe Morello table of time you know they do that against a click and the rule was you know you don't move on until the click is just totally buried so yeah and, and anyone listening if you haven't experienced this it's really fun you know you watch your friends sitting there playing quarter notes and i remember jim benoit doing this who was on our uh, he's a principal of seattle symphony timpanist now but i remember walking in the little practice room common area and i just hear him playing these full strokes on the pad and we'd start having a conversation and i never heard a click and then he'd stop playing and oh wow there was a metronome there the whole time and he just carried the whole conversation with me and it was just very very uh yeah it's it's really a impressive thing if you've never really seen someone bury a slow metronome like that but i was gonna say sam if if uh that type of basic exercise is the the basic for drum set what would you say the the equivalent of that is on i don't know say timpani or maybe something of your choosing yeah well i mean time is time so i think that itself yeah. is the most fundamental but i think for timpani i love timpani and this goes back to what i was taught at yale and is the sound production of it and i think once you know how to manipulate sound on timpani and really fully understand what you can do with it that applies to every other instrument on, on percussion in per, you know in percussion i think like marimba definitely i think how you touch and it's actually a lot easier i think on marimba than to do it on timpani snare drum same thing you learn about the timbral difference you learn about the understanding of the instrument itself you learn about strokes every everything i think you know definitely sound production carries over this entire umbrella of percussion instruments that i think yeah, I think just sound production has to be the one. Yeah. I, I wanted to follow that up. One thing that did not strike me until years after it happened, my first teacher was a timpanist. He was the former timpanist of both the, uh, the president's own Marine Corps band, as well as the Richmond Symphony. His name was Don Bick. And I never studied timpani with him, actually. I studied mm -hmm. marimba with him. But as time has gone on, I think that timpani is the most difficult instrument to yes. teach because, first of all, so much of the, the timpani solos that we can get our hands on are just multi-ton solos that just happen to be played on timpani. But then you get something like a rabio etude, which is what I use, or like a Hochreiner etude, 
and a student walks in and like, you know, with four quarter notes and a half note and they, you know, figure out how to tune them up, tune them up. And then they play the, you know, five notes there in time. But it sounds terrible. <laughs> and it, it's so hard to, to get students to understand, like, you, you actually need to work on those four quarter notes. You actually need to make them sound beautiful. So have you found that in your teaching, especially of timpani? And what's been your strategy to get students to improve on timpani? Yeah. OK, so I hate to keep doing this, but I'm, to go back to you know, my teachers, you know, uh, Professor Vessels, of course, he's, uh, he's an amazing timpanist. He was a timpanist, too. He has this quote about timpani, which is, playing timpani is um, per perfect execution of a simple task. And I think that's what it is, right? It's, it's playing timpani is as simple as just playing four drums. If you think about it, just playing four drums, four pitches, you know, unless there are pitch changes, but four pitches and you just kind of play. So I think a lot of students, especially that's how I felt it when I was in high school and also kind of starting college, was like, oh yeah, timpani, I don't know how to practice because it's just, I'm getting it, look, boom, done, right? But I think once you really get into it, like you said, I use Hockreiner, especially number one, if you know, you know, to, to, to the viewers, if you know Hockreiner number one, it's just all half notes and some quarter notes, right? And what I do with my students is what I, that I got taught at Yale was just kind of let them play. And anytime I hear timbral difference, um, tempo change, um, inconsistency of the sound, I would stop and say again, and again, and again, and again. And I, because I think the best way to go about timpani is just for you to learn and be really comfortable. It's going to take time, yes, but I mean, everything's gonna take time. But by doing that, you're really letting your students aim for perfection. And I think there's nothing wrong with that, especially on an instrument like timpani. Um, that I, I think there's nothing wrong with that to just kind of really go for perfection. And for them to pass number one, they can move on to number two. And this is what exactly the Yale, so I'm not trying to say this is my idea. Um, but you talk to any of Yale guys or Peabody guys, they've done this, right? So pass through number 10. That's like your goal for that semester. Um, so that is also the same sort of way that I'm trying to take it in. But for me, I'm tr I try to make that a connected more to other instruments, not just timpani, but marimba, even conga. I feel like it, it definitely there's a connection of the sound production part of timpani. That's awesome. And that's so true. And it's so beautiful to see in a student when they go from having those kinds of expectations, you know, satisfied as just like, okay, it's just four drums. And then be like, oh my gosh, I never paid attention yeah. to the sound color or to yeah. any sort of consistency. It's it's really cool. Um, okay, so I have two questions for you you can pick. One is you can tell us a really embarrassing story about Dmitry Nilov. <laughs> and the other one <laughs> is you can tell us uh, a little bit about your ARD experience. Oh, this the first one. That... <laughs> I don't know if they will be appropriate for this. <laughs> okay. I spent a whole two hours with Dimitri. I can tell a few stories. <laughs> what well, Sam so thinks of an embarrassing story, can I tell an embarrassing story about Dimitri? This is uh, this is a very brief one. If if you've ever met Dimitri, you know he all he has to have coffee. Like that's just the thing. He's worse than spent with that. He has to have coffee. And there was this one time in Miami that we had a gig, like in like somewhere on the Gulf Coast of Florida. 
And I was driving, and I go to pick Dimitri up, and he's nowhere to be found. And I call his cell phone like a thousand times. He doesn't answer. And I'm like sitting outside of his like dorm, like, Dimitri, come on, we like pick up, we need to go. And so finally, like literally like a half hour later, he answers. He's like, oh, sorry, I just woke up. I'll be right down. And we've already burned like through the buffer that I left for Dimitri to be late. And then it's like another 45 minutes before he emerges. So I'm like flooring it to get out, you know, get to, to the Gulf Coast. And Dimitri's like, Ben, can I ask you a question? Can we stop for coffee? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, no, we can't stop for coffee. We're running so, late. <laughs> so, okay, so Ksenia, this is like an Eastern European thing, right? Because I've, I've, I've had, yeah, pe people from over there, same thing. Like, we have to catch a train. This was in Taiwan. And like, we have to leave right now. Like, we have to take this cab or we will not make it. Oh, but yes, but could we have a coffee? No, <laughs> no, we can't have a coffee. It was the exact same thing, Ben. It was literally the exact thing. I was like, what? No, we can't have a coffee. Are you insane? We will be late. We have to go. This The concert's in another city. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly true. Coffee is, is what runs through our veins, so we can't do without it. Yeah, I know. I understand Dimitri's pain, but he might have, he could have planned for it a little bit better, I assume. Um, Sam, any contributions, or would you like to talk about the prestigious composition <laughs> or competition, sir? Oh, I could talk about Dimitri. For hours. <laughs> I really, so we, so I, I don't know if, so for, so for some of you who may not know, I lived with him for two years. Um, and you're alive to tell the tale. And, oh my, oh, not two years, one year, one year, sorry. Um, but that was enough to have many <laughs> stories. But, well, okay, one, one story that I really remember, and this is not an embarrassing story, this is actually pretty sweet. Uh, I mean, he's a sweet guy. You know, he's just amazingly sweet. You can say whatever yeah. about him. I mean, there won't be a lot to say. I mean, say negative about him. It's just he's so, so sweet, right? Yeah. And what he loves to do is just to talk to you, right? Mm -hmm. So one time we went to Trader Joe's together. And on our way back, you know, he was like, Sam, what are you going to do? And I was like, well, I was thinking about going to practice. You know, I have a lesson tomorrow. And, uh, you know, I feel like I really need to practice. And he was like... Me too, me too. So we, you know, go to Treasures, come back, we move everything back uh, in, the, in the fridge and stuff. And then we come out and then we see this, this like full bottle of tequila on our stand. <laughs> and for some reason, I don't know why, we took it with us. And we went to the school and we're like, okay, I'll see you in like two, three hours or something. And this is like 8 p.m., right? And after 20 minutes, he comes in with a bottle of tequila and he's like, do you want to have a shot outside? And I was like, okay. So I, I don't know why. I, when we started just drinking outside the school, like, you know, in this patio where, you know, drinking was allowed. And we finished the entire bottle that night. <laughs> of course. And I think we just went home at like 3 a.m., and then, of course, the next morning, I was just, like, dead. We were both dead for our lessons. And, you know, thank God nothing bad happened. But, yeah, that was uh, – that's one thing I remember. But, you know, we had really serious talks and about life and about music and all that. I still remember that moment because I think that's really one of the true moments that we, like, really connected. Um, so, yeah, that's one story. Dimitri will do that to you. 
Okay, will come in and be like, oh, just a five minute break, just one right. glass of wine, right. nothing special. And then you're on the floor laughing and you don't know what day it is or what hour it is. Oh, anymore. yeah. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's Dimitri, exactly. Okay, well then, let's move on to... Dimitri, you're welcome that we speak of you. So I know. You're a oh, living legend. Oh, <laughs> um, tell us about ARD. Tell us about your experience. It was great. Uh, it was about a year... I mean, exactly a year ago, I would be dying right now. I mean, I was practicing so hard. I've never... I don't think I've ever practiced that much in my life. Um but the entire process was great. I think it really did challenge me to learn the pieces that I've never learned before ever, um, which I get to, which I got to play constantly after that. Um, and it really taught me about my limits, you know, where my limits are and stuff like that. Um, so the whole experience was great. And I met a lot of great people. Well, Sam, can you tell us a little about the process of ARD? Like if, if there were a student out there that specifically was, was thinking, hey, this is a really renowned competition and I really want to consider doing it. What would they be getting into and what, like, what's the process? So the process, so ARD itself, <clears throat> uh, it's not like an annual competition. It's a competition that sort of uh, goes around in, in turns, sort of like a Olympics in a way. If you so if, uh, each instrument, I think percussion happens every four years, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I think every instrument kind of happens every four years. Uh, so if you are planning on doing the next one, I think it's going to mean like 2023, I believe. Um, and you, basically, it's just like other uh, competitions. You send in tapes, uh, and then you get approved. You, you pass the pre-screening, and then uh, you're into first round. Uh, the competition is in Munich, Germany. And um, yeah, the whole thing was super professional. And I, yeah, if you just follow everything in the list uh-huh. of things to do on their website it shouldn't be a problem what uh yeah. w- what might be on that list like what repertoire oh, can they expect it's, that it's you either have to list. choose from or yeah like like how many pieces are obligatory um give us some of those fun details so i think from my memory except for the commissioned piece which is in, which was in the semi-final everything you can choose from a list so there's no obligatory piece except for this the commission list commission piece but you have to choose from the specific list so you know first round i remember was i you know snare drum solo marimba solo and then timpani solo so very basic sort of first round to kind of see you what you can you know, that you can play well in all the three uh, instruments. Um, the second round, and then from then there on, it kind of becomes more and more, you know, like a more, more virtuoso marimba solos, virtuosic marimba solos, and like multi-pieces will be added on there. Yeah. I think uh, one thing that happens with these giant competitions, and I just looked up actually, and um, they've so they've moved, I guess, the 2020 competition to to 2021. Mm. But mm. I'm looking up further planning, and percussion is not yet on the 
on the roster and the latest year they have is 2024. So it's definitely yeah. great for very young players to start planning now yeah. because you'll have, I mean, you have five years to prepare for this, you know? Yeah. Um, but it's a fantastic experience. Yeah. 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 It's the whole thing was, yeah, it, it, within that list, it was like, you know, theatrical percussion pieces. And I think it really depends on who's judging as well. Um, they'll sort of kind of tweak tweak and sort of fix the list as, as it goes on so i don't think it's like a fixed list every time but i could be wrong so yeah. Sam, how, how fast this is going to be a really annoyingly vague question <laughs> but like how, how fast do you do you feel good like going through repertoire i know i struggle with especially oh. my older students masters and doctoral students they often just want to chew through rep and they see all these big pieces and of course there's new pieces written every week and um yeah they just really want to learn all this stuff so fast and i've never been someone who can learn music fast and i, I just wonder like what do you think is a good pace what's the pace you set for yourself oh because i know if i don't start learning something new i start to feel bad but that usually takes a month or two to kick in right and then i start feeling like crap <laughs> when oh, when do no. you start when do you start feeling like crap <laughs> when i see that list <laughs> yeah for ard it was like 10 pieces that i had to prepare um yeah i'm not really fast in learning pieces as well i mean dimitri speaking about dimitri he learns pieces super fast yeah, he does. Uh, yeah but i am not like that um, but I think once I start to find that groove, so I, my, my, I think my progression is like uh, exponential. It doesn't, it's not, it's not fast from the start, but I think as, as more and more I get into sort of know the piece and, oh, this piece is about this and okay, that's that kind of, yeah, does that in the late process. Um, but yeah, I, I try not to leave anything towards the last minute because I, I know I'm not a fast learner. So I try to, you know, when I was preparing for ARD, I think by, you know, this competition was early September. By late July, I pretty much knew, you know, I, maybe I couldn't play from back to back all in one tempo, you know, you know, at tempo. But I knew what the entire piece felt like and sounded like. That's a giant undertaking. Go ahead. Yosinia, do you want to jump us into this hornet's nest that Carly left for us? Oh, yeah, yeah, we have a... Uh, Sam, <laughs> so hornet's nest in a package for Sam. <laughs> what? <laughs> oh, oh, Sam, this is going to be fun. Um, okay. So, as, okay. <laughs> as every, uh, as in every episode, we always talk about some hot topics, some hot take on a hot article. And uh, this time, Carly got to pick, and she... Uh, she gave us this gem to look at, and it's an article um, that was posted on I, I Care If You Listen, the title being Out of Context, Diversifying Programming with Integrity, written by Shruti uh, Rajasekhar. Mm -hmm. And um, basically what the article opens with is saying, oh, how many times have you been to a concert that sort of has a maybe a Black American spiritual at the end of a choral concert or a piece of a South American composer slotted in between European symphonies to, you know, have a little bit of Latin flavored rhythms. Um, 
and saying, you know, whether that's okay as an approach, as a programming approach, especially keeping in mind that last year, the new music scene exploded with some voices pointing mm -hmm. out how white composers had appropriated and thieved the music of historically marginalized composers of color. Now, in Western music, and this is something that we've been talking about a lot recently, um, there's a long history of composers using music to evoke the quote-unquote exotic unknown, dividing humans into categories of primitive them and divinely ordained us. That's one way to look at it. Um, and so what this article does is it uh, offers a nice perspective on what would be the way to approach programming with integrity. And Ben has already um, said a little bit about this, but I, I would love to hear maybe once more, maybe Ben could tell us a little bit deeper of how he went into diversifying or choosing his programming for his percussion ensemble this mm. year. Sure, well, I think a lot of it has to do with context. And I think that the article brings up the sort of dangerous topic of tokenization. And what we don't want to do is like, Look, we got Latin music covered. Done. Cool. So, can we be progressive now? Like, I, that's that's not good for me. In in my programming, what the idea that I came up with is, if you look at society throughout the world, or even just isolated to in the United States, only fifty percent of people are male. But how many concerts do we go to where one hundred percent of the pieces are by men? And I'm not excusing it, but I'm saying if you look at the classical repertoire, I'm talking about for orchestras in particular, it, the, the old dead white male composer, there are a lot of them that have really good work. And maybe historically the, their female counterparts have been suppressed, but maybe it's just out of laziness. Like I think that symphonies are going to tend to program for that. Percussion ensemble, on the other hand, it didn't exist until the 20th century. I mean, there and there's if you look back at the 1930s, there were females writing for percussion ensemble. And so I think it's absolutely ridiculous to have 100% of our music written by white men on a percussion ensemble concert. It just doesn't make any sense to me. But furthermore, I think the, the answer, ugh, look at me giving the answer, but <laughs> an answer possibly is better way of saying it and answer for symphony orchestra concerts. One one thing to keep in mind is when you're talking about like Indian music, and I'm speaking of music from India, not Native American music, Indian music is not composed for orchestra. It's And other than a very few Ravi Shankar type musicians, there are very few legitimate Indian musicians that are also writing music for a Western orchestra. So if you want to bring in Indian culture into a Western orchestra, you're possibly looking at someone that's we'll call it borrowing elements of Indian music and in percussion ensemble like I was just practicing Mudra earlier today there's a great example like it's Indian-ish uh, but I think if you look at the context that Bob Becker is coming from and composing Mudra I, he legitimately studied Indian music with legitimate Indian musicians and it is his tribute his bringing it into the fold and he has I'm sure done his dues in paying for lessons and things like that in order to make mudra have some sort of legitimacy uh, for, for me to program as an Indian influence piece on my Western percussion ensemble. But I think that, that to get back to what I said might be the possible solution is don't program a piece simply because you want a, a Latin piece. But if you maybe are programming Leonard Bernstein's, Leonard Bernstein's symphonic dances from West Side Story that obviously has a lot of Latin American influence in it with things like the mambo, 
why not look at Latin composers that, you know, would have influenced Bernstein? That's a great example. Or the, the Copeland, uh, what's that Copeland Mexican inspired piece? I'm, I'm blanking on the name. Um, Oh, no, uh, Copeland, I'm Googling it. Um, sorry, sorry. Uh, El Salon, Mexico, uh, the, the Copeland piece, another great piece. So maybe looking at that or also uh, you could do like a historical comparison of Beethoven's Eighth Symphony was written in 1812. What is a, a piece by a female composer written in 1812 or a non-Western composer in 1812, which might be a hard get admittedly, but have some sort of context. And I think this is what Arthur is bringing up. Have some sort of context for your programming choices. Don't just program a fun Latin encore to your serious Western dead white men music concert because it, because it looks good and ticks off the diversity statistic. So that's my answer. No tokenization. You have to have a reason for doing what you're doing. And if it's a you know legitimate, well thought out reason, I think that's good. And the article sort of doesn't directly say this, but it says in so many words like, make a mistake, like risk making the mistake, get told by someone that has been tokenized, hey, you did that sort of wrong and, and make better strides in the future. So that's my hot take on it. Sam, how about you? <laughs> Here you go, Sam. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast. hot potato, yeah. No, I completely agree. And uh, I, think, I think one thing we have to really consider is the depth of these things. You know, if we want to play, and I think there's nothing wrong with trying to portray different cultures in your concert. Like I said, I think maybe that could really, uh, but I think it's the depth of how you say it. I, th I think, Ben, you said like, oh, let's have some Latin music. So here we go. Boom. You know, I think that is a problem, as you said, but I think it's the depth of it, of how far are you willing to go in terms of, you know, really going and researching and talking to people who've, you know, who've practiced this for you know, their entire life or, you know, lived in it and stuff like that. I think as, you know, I mean, most of our, you know, all of us are teachers here. And I think if you're a musician, you're a teacher in some form, in some way or another. And I think that's why our role is so important because I think depending on how we do it and how we show it to our students and to really showcase how it's supposed to be done whatever that is, if we, are, if we were to ever find that really true answer, then I think it is up to us to really try to make that change and try to make their, you know, pros, you know, their uh, perspective change. So, yeah. Ben, I like that you had kind of like a concrete, actionable take of <laughs> like what you're going to do with your programming. I get exhausted with a lot of the vague language out there. And I thought this article had a whole lot of that really vague language. And people like to say what they believe and say what other people should do. But I feel like so much of what was being asked of people in this article was just not practical. I mean, like what would be wrong? Hey, I want to, I want like a flashy showy piece oh i know this latin piece like do, do you really have to read a dissertation on latin music to just enjoy this like no i mean like i don't think so i think that, i think if anything this article is a big deterrent like she lists off all these reasons hey if you're thinking of programming something cultural well you should probably talk to people of that culture 
talk to people. I mean, and that's so that's such an assumption there. Like if I want to talk, if I want to program Tennis Cal by Javier Alvarez, okay, which I've been playing for years and I've been playing it all over the place and I've played it across this ocean and I always get positive response from it. People always say, holy shit, I had no idea you could even do that with maracas. Like I had no idea maracas were real instruments. Literally almost after every time. And then you start a conversation with them. You say like, oh yeah, yeah, that's like Haropo maraca tradition. And if you thought I was good at it, boy, you should see them. I am just scratching the surface of what what they do with maracas. Wow, so that's Venezuelan. Oh, I had no idea. But this is a piece written by a Mexican guy, Javier Alvarez. It's using Haropo maraca technique, which is from Venezuela. He's, uh, he's living in the UK when he writes it. And the subject matter is Aztec. Like, I just, I just, it's like, no, I, I get it. Like, okay, there's all this stuff we should do to risk not offending a certain person. But I think the deficit is far stronger than th- the risk of offending. I mean, the amount of people that just said like, wow, that was cool. That's, and, and I think, frankly, we have our own culture as percussionists. Like, we have our own goals. And for people to say, hey, if you're going to program something that is, quote, cultural, you got to do all these things. And if you only went three steps to make sure it was right, well, that's not enough. You got to do 20. It's like, man, people are just going to not even play it. And it's like, wait, I'm just going to stop playing tennis, Cal, if I'm, I'm at the risk of like offending people and being canceled or something. But that, that would be a great disservice to what, what, what appreciation that has shown to people and what it's exposed people to. I think Thomas Cowell is a great example. I've, I played that when I was at Miami. And in so many words, what Svet said is like, listen, like, you've got to figure out how to approximate Herobo uh, Maraca playing because the, the Venezuelan guys aren't playing this piece. It, <laughs> it's it's up to the Westerner to to play that piece because if you're a traditional Herobo Maraca player, you're you're not looking for a Thomas Cowell to play. Uh, but anyway, I, I would just wanted to bring up, I think it's actually a lot easier for higher educators and professional groups like symphony orchestras or professionally so percussion stuff like that to do this i think it's actually much more difficult for educators to do this i have heard a thousand terrible percussion ensemble arrangements that sort of do this corny job of copying and pasting you know some sort of interpreted latin rhythms but it's at you know at the same rate it's like should if that's the only way we can easily expose our students to it, is it is it bad? And I think like Casey is saying, it's it's right. It's like is the the risk of offending worth the possible benefit of it? And also in my little diversity programming spiel, I found it very easy to find diversity in progression ensemble programming. I don't find it very easy to find diversity in percussion method books, uh, keyboard. There are a couple, but other than that. I could not name a single snare drum method book that is not written by a white male. Um, and, you know, like I said, it's like we can get all hoity-toity about programming, but what about studying? Joe Morello is um, so, blind, though. What's that? Joe Morello is blind. He was? Yeah. Yeah, he's legally blind. Okay, legally blind. Yeah, I was like, I don't think yeah. he's legally blind. So, you know, that's cool. But you see what I'm saying, right? Like, I, like I, I didn't like this article. It's like very presumptuous to assume, okay, I'm going to play this thing that has uh, Haropo Maraca playing in it. So I better, I, I damn well better find a Venezuelan in my hometown of Harrisonburg, Virginia, 
and talk to them and like get some perspective on this piece from them. Wait, it's, what what makes you think they would know about about this music playing, like about this style? Like, it's not like I know, you know, I'm I live in Virginia, but I don't know anything about bluegrass music. Yeah, you know, I'm from I'm like, from America. I don't know anything about country music. Like, like it's it's almost racist to assume. I mean, I, I think it is to like assume. Okay, I'm going to get this local person's permission from my hometown to play this piece because they must. They're from Venezuela. They must know about Haropo style music. Like, well, what? Like, no. Why would you assume that? I was going to say it also makes me think of like uh, Zanakis Oko. Like, how many how many African djembe players are you talking to before you play Oko? I, I know. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I thought this I thought this article was a bummer. I thought it, it, it was such a deterrent. You know, it's like it's a deterrent gonna deter people from programming stuff that would otherwise be good exposure and appreciation. I think there can be a happy medium though. Yeah. I think it is it is good for anyone to be more curious and to find that more if you're playing Oko Oko, go find more about Jimba playing, why, where that's, that came from, why Zanakas was interested in that, and learn more about it for that, so that in the future, you know, that's one thing I kind of agreed with the article when I read, so the invite the practitioner, right? Like, have the practitioner, and of course money is an issue, but if you can have a, you know, budget or some sort of, you have a friend of friends of friends who plays this instrument professionally, you know, I think talking to them and sort of really going into it curious is something that's very important um yeah yeah but yeah i agree that yeah yeah that's certainly a good point and that's only going to help your performance too Mm -hmm. it's like Mm -hmm. if it's a djembe trio hey learn how to play djembe yeah (laughs) it'll help um i i agree and i i really do agree with uh sam i think it's for those who can afford it and who have the you know mental financial all the required energy to do so um they they should do it and they should inform the people because especially with the kind of music that we do the appreciation level rises with the understanding of of the context so it's it's certainly helpful but i thought that it was um what was most interesting to me about this article were the two little events that it hyperlinked in the beginning um, and I thought one of them, I don't know if you've heard about this, I missed this somehow, what happened to Roomful of Teeth. Um, so basically their uh, partita for eight voices, uh, which was composed by Caroline Shaw, um, the group came under fire recently from uh, Tanya Tagak. Uh, she's a celebrated uh, Inuit throat singer. Uh, because they used throat singing, uh, which comes from a long oral tradition among Inuit women. And this piece has won a Grammy Award in 2012 and a Pulitzer Prize in 2013. So um, the group obviously came out saying that they're going to do a lot better job, that they're going to include it all in their program notes, because obviously they're trying to have this as an homage to the tradition and not try to rip anyone off. But the way Tanya responded, she said, so you will read aloud before every show that you are appropriating songs, or will you just speak of Inuit being generous or give an anthropology class at the top of the show? Um, so many commenters online suggested that future proceeds from Partita for Eight Voices should go to a charity that focuses on helping Inuit artists. Um, and then I you know, thought of our own fertility rights by 
uh, Christos Hatzis, which also uses Inuit singing, you know, the marimba and um, electronics piece, or what about con variations? It's, you know, based on Pakistani uh, vocal tradition. Should that, even though it's written by an Argentinian living in London for marimba, <laughs> I mean, which is so beautiful, so many cross-pollinations, right? Exactly. The things bleeding into one another. Like these bridges but are so beautiful, you know? They are, but I and think in the end, it's all about the money. People are constantly talking about the money. They're not happy enough with, um, it's not about telling people where it comes from. It's not about telling them where you got the inspiration from. It seems to be all about the money. The well, proceeds article, should go back to the root. Sure, That's sure. What I mean, but this article to me was not, the thing I took away from it was not, hey, you should give credit where credit is due. And if you're going to use Inuit throat singing, you should let the people know that that's what it is. That wasn't the t what I heard in the article at all. All I heard was you basically, if you want to do something like that, you need to educate yourself in all these ways. And you need to make sure that the people of the community are happy with it. Assuming there are people in your community uh, doing Inuit throat singing, which, spoiler alert, there probably aren't. But... It's it's just like all these barriers to getting it done. When I yeah. think like what Ben said in the beginning, like, well, what if you just like it? You know, like, it, what if you just like it? And I, I agree, you should put program notes, of course. And people find that really fascinating. You know, I mean, people want to know that stuff. It only helps your event to know that type of thing. But it's almost like, hey, if you're considering using another culture's um, music in one of your programs, you need to go through this really extensive layer of like permissions to get to get the author's moral approval to do this and i just think i it's just not tenable you know i just wanted to mention one that Ksenia mentioned one of the hyperlinks uh the other one was uh, hyperlinked to this article called the curious case of keiko yamada which to make a long oh. short <laughs> this is a fake name it, right yeah, there was a guy yeah. named uh, Larry Clark. <laughs> Clark, yeah, Larry Clark, Larry and he wrote uh, he wrote a piece. Uh, I can't quickly find it either a, a piece or several pieces that had some sort of Japanese theme to them, and he chose this pen. <laughs> I'm on. I want him on the podcast. Which I mean, like. It, it, I think he. I think they were from 2004 or something like that. Somewhat of somewhat of a different time. And I. I actually. I will believe his story that he. He was not actually choosing the pen name to to try and profit off of it. I think maybe he thought it was a more appropriate name to be associated with a piece or something. But but obviously, I mean, Casey was saying this article that we're talking about in the first first place is maybe a little over the top, and it, it sort of. You know, you, it puts you in danger of programming any music by someone other than a white male Western composer. But in this case, clearly over the line, do not, if you are, you know, a, a Western European descendant, do not choose some sort of Asian pen name to sell your Asian piece. <laughs> but if your name's Larry Clark, you probably should change your name to something. <laughs> Sounds like a pen name that. already. <laughs> Like no. probably a name like something Italian sounding like Casey Cangelosi. <laughs> Cats out of the bag now, Larry. <laughs> but you see what I'm saying? Like all these barriers. It's like wait for 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 this person's moral approval. You got to go through all these steps yeah, when I mean, it, it's just like wait. I I only have two hands. I, think I, I, I want to make a bridge to people who've never heard this before. Like, I'm sorry I can't do all 30 steps that you want, 
but there's only 24 hours in the day. I only have two hands. Is it okay if I just do the, like the first five steps of that? And I make some program notes and I mean, come on, please, you know, like we, we won't have music anymore, you know, like we won't. I was going to say, I think it's, it's easy to write a hot take in an article like this. I think that the point that, that I, hopefully I sort of drove home was like, it's your intention that matters. It's lazy programming to throw on some sort of Latin American piece because mm-hmm. people clap at the end of your concert. That's bad. Sure. But at the same rate, I, I don't think you need to read every dissertation ever written about Cuban music to program a piece that has like, you know, Gershwin Cuban overture or something like that. Yeah, sure, sure, there's, sure. There's certainly a happy middle ground of being ignorant and being, you know, making an effort. Yeah, that's, that's well said. You're right. Of course. Okay, Ben wins. Well, Sam wins, then Ben gets second place. I'll take it. And also, I, I wanted to mention also, I, I was talking about Mudra. Not only did Bob Becker study Indian music, I studied Indian music extensively in my undergrad. So I feel like I have some sort of, you know, background in this that I'm not just picking out Mudra because it, it makes me look cool playing snare drum or something. That's not, that's not what I'm about. You're not about that? If you've I, ever seen me play I snare drum, you can tell me that I definitely don't look cool playing snare drum. Things that I need to do I in my do life. Stick, like, stick tricks like Casey can. <laughs> metronome on my snare drum. Um, ben, were you going to, uh, you said you had another topic that you wanted to ask Sam, or do you oh, want yeah, me to? Yeah, I had just completely unrelated to all this, but. Uh, I was, I think a lot about percussion, percussion lineages and like, oh, it's cool. You can trace your roots to like a Keiko Abe or Lee Howard Stevens, something like that. Sam has one of the most uh, impressive percussion lineages in that he's extensively studied with both Michael Burrett and Robert Van Syce, who are two of the top, if not the top two American percussion pedagogues. So could you tell us about what your impression was like? How, how are they similar? How are they different? Yeah, and, and I get this question a lot, to be honest, just from, uh, you know, prospective students, actually, who are, you know, either auditioning for both Eastman, Yale, Peabody, or, you know, have gotten into the, both schools. And, um, and of course, both of them are just, like you said, they're amazing teachers. Um, but for me, I experienced both two teachers in a very two different, different stages of my life. So one was from undergrad, and the other was um, for masters and DMA. You know, so it was just very different stages of my life, where I think my intake of their teaching was very different, um, as well as sort of my remembering, to be honest. Um, but they're just both truly inspiring, uh, with. Professor Burrett, it was just kind of playing with him was just so fun. Yeah, I still remember uh, learning Libertango and taking a lesson from uh, Professor Burrett on Libertango, and he was just like out there playing drum set with me, you know? Like, he's so cool and he's so, you know, energetic, and that really bleeds into his teaching. And um, I think I'm really glad that I went to Eastman and studied with Professor Burrett for my undergrad because that really put fuel into this my my musical fire if you will right i think his love for music and his you know just joy of making music really had a huge influence in my life um and then of course i went on to study with professor van sice who was who is more you know 
I hate to say, well, he's more brainy, if you will, in a, in a very good way, you know, right? I mean, Professor Burrett, too, he, he's really, really brilliant, too, but in a very different way. He's, you know, Professor Van Stuys is more, like I said, it's like a sound production, like, let's really dissect this, in a way, you know, and for me, going through Eastman, really learning about this fire and this, like, joy of music, and then getting into Yale and, like, really, okay, you got the fire, let's kind of open everything up and then dig everything inside of it, right? So I think those two different style of pedagogy really helped in a way it kind of aligned with where I was in my life. So, yeah. That's, yeah so another, um, another question, which uh, we've asked uh, Jeff already, but who's your favorite person to play with in the collective? Who do you like? The oh, yes. <laughs> Gosh, do I have to pick one? Yeah. Everybody, but... That's, no, disqualified. You gotta give us a name. He gave us a name. Who do you say? I didn't, uh, you gotta go back and watch that episode. Oh, I didn't... <laughs> what? Okay. I have two different answers. One, one is my favorite person to play because of just like this chamber music feel. And the other is just fun. Uh, first person, like the chamber music is Ian Rosenbaum. <clears throat> I think he's just, I mean, he's there playing piano, right? I mean, most, mostly on, in, in the percussion collective, he plays piano. But every time I look at him, he's like, eyes are just, I don't know how, he's, he's always looking at everybody. Like, yeah, yeah he's yeah. always like, everywhere yeah. i'm like did you memorize your music you know <laughs> but the person that i really just have fun playing with has to be garrett arnie mm -hmm. he's just a, i mean person wise he's just so goofy in the best way possible i remember still playing premiering the uh, seaborn concerto version with louisville symphony and every time like each section i would just like look back at him just like smiling and i think that brings joy into I hope hopefully that brings joy into the performance and definitely into my experience definitely brought joy so yeah who do you That's like awesome. better Ben or Ksenia <laughs> oh <Casey>. gosh <laughs> spent an hour with us yeah honest guy Ksenia it's okay <clears throat> Casey Casey is the <laughs> scariest <laughs> from now right especially because of his t-shirt that's so bad so angry oh me metal t-shirt you betcha yeah, well, in the topic too. I thought the topic was a bummer. I got, I got angry. <laughs> Very angry. Plato's Cave by Casey Cangelosian. Just I've, loving it. You're playing it now? No, I, I played it before. Oh, My student cool. actually is playing Glamour. Oh, great! Cool. For her cool. recital. So, yeah. That's great. Thanks. I'm sure Take we'll that. reach out. Take yeah. that, Ben. Send you. See. So in a whole. Why don't you play my music? <laughs> <laughs> So Sam, basically what you're saying is that you encourage your students to play as much music composed by cisgender, straight, white males as mm. possible. You don't know if that's me. Mm. You don't know if I'm straight. Yeah, let's ask Casey. I'm offended you just assume. I'm offended you think you just know. 
He's from Virginia. That's diverse enough, you know. That really that changes the ball game, definitely. I'm not from Virginia. We should now you this. are. Shush! I you're a so. Malatek performer. <laughs> <from> Virginia. <laughs> what is this Malatek? We have a lot of Malateks at JMU. I'm a majestic artist, but the, oh, but yeah, JMU. The the job I inherited, they just have this wealth of Malatek marimbas. It's great. They they all sound great. It's you know I'm I'm not a Malatek artist, but Lee and I are friends, and yeah, it's it's just fine. No, it's all it's all majestic. Look up, uh, everybody. Go to our Instagram page. You can see um, very embarrassing uh, photos of Casey Cangelosi when uh, he uh, was ripped. Uh-huh. So hey, that's why. Hey, I'm hey, why don't you why don't you do a little pitch for the Patreon, Ksenia? Damn it! Where do I find the list? Who's our Who's our person for this time? Oh, uh, our new our new Patreon. Uh, we have new Alan Lang. Thanks so much. And we have another new patron. Just a minute. I'll find it. I just posted his name. But why don't you do a little pitch for to convince more patrons to come? Tell them how they'll get tenure and stuff. Cangelo, oh, see. Okay, so you should go and check out our uh, Patreon page because Casey put so much effort in it, and you should go and give him a little gold star there. And you can see, see that, that we have see that three so levels. Yeah. We promise we won't forget your name. What does that even mean? <laughs> you're derailing me. This is gonna be really hard to edit. <laughs> Casey, you're welcome. No, it'll um, be fine. This this will all this will all go in just fine. <laughs> Yeah, this all stays in. Yeah, big thanks, new new patrons, Alan Lang, and also Walden Perry. Walden Perry is our first mid-level patron because he's obsessed with Xenakis and can't stop telling his friends about it. <laughs> that is the tier. Too. That is the name of the tier. Can't stop talking about Xenakis. Yeah. And Alan Lang's getting tenure. So thank you both. Yeah, thank you so much for supporting the podcast. All right. I think we've slowly reached the end of this show. Sam, thank you so much for being our guest and for letting us get to know you a little bit better. It's been a pleasure. Thanks thanks for having me. It was fun. Thanks, Sam. (laughs) Yeah, thank you so much. Best of luck at Kansas. I mean, I'm sure it's going to be an exciting year. And best of luck with the end of your doctorate and all of that. I'm sure you're going to have a lot of great news to tell us in a year when you come back. If I become a doctor, it's going to be Dr. Um. Dr. Um. Drum. Dr. Um. Dr. Drum? <gasps> You're going to be drum. Oh, my God. I see. I see. That's the only reason why I'm getting drum. doctorate. Just, oh, you know. it's, it's <laughs> meant to be. The prophecy. <laughs> the prophecy. Oh, my God. Your website is going to change. I know. I know. You're going to have a completely different logo on it. That's amazing. That's amazing. Good job. Good job. <laughs> Um, very cool. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Casey. Um, Carly, we look forward to having you back with us, and we'll see you all back on um, episode 251.